0: marine bombing. I was the Pentagon's country director for Lebanon when the Marines were hit, and I'm not sure how many people know, perhaps Norman does. but the man who trained Hezbollah in the Bekaa Valley and oversaw that bombing um, was Hassan Rouhani's first defense minister in 2013 while we were having such a collegial time negotiating uh, the nuclear agreement. But I didn't come here to talk about terrorism. I came to talk about U.S.-Arab to defense relations, and I thought I would start with a headline. Ladies and gentlemen, the Gulf War has ended. It's over. And by that I mean the 1991 Gulf War, which set a pattern of military relations, which I believe is going to change in very important ways on our side as well as the Arab military side. So let me just give you the rough outline of why I say that. Um, The U.S. is now being guided by the National Defense Strategy. And if you have looked at the expert uh, reports that have been done on that, Congressional one of Johns Hopkins, what you see is a clear turn toward a focus on technology that will once again increase the gap of superiority, hopefully, between the United States and peer strategic competitors, Russia and China. That means there will be an intense focus on new technologies. Uh, you will see a focus on hypersonic weapons, on autonomous and unmanned systems and robotics see cyber tools integrated into, into war plans. You'll see artificial intelligence at some point, which is an indicator that we will see much more massive data used as part of, of the art of war. I, I predict that we will not see a large air land and sea, combined formations searching to the forward edge of battle. Um, that, that, that dynamic is changing. We will see instead small elite groups of specialized forces, um, heavily enabled by technology and data, uh, who are working closely with locals as we sort of buy with and through thesis that we have seen our combatant commanders use. And so what this means is that from an export control standpoint, uh, releaseability will move beyond the crown jewels of of predators and night vision, and we will Systems and data management systems, um, and that's going to be that's going to be difficult because our own bureaucracy has to get its 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 arms around these technologies and understand them better. But at the same time, there's another change which I think hasn't happened yet, but is about to happen, and that is uh, the use of commercial communications technology by U.S. forces. Now, our expert from Northrop Grumman may have a different view of this, but I am predicting here that there will be a massive upgrade in bandwidth for both land forces and maritime forces today. Uh, only the carriers have a lot of bandwidth. The rest of the fleet has almost none. So when you have joint strike fighters flying above, they need to be able to talk uh, to the ships below, but it's much bigger than that. Uh, the idea that we can actually connect soldiers on the ground using their smartphones um, in a jammed environment with the with DOD cloud connects them not only to command centers, but also to 3 letter intelligence agencies in near real time is a major change. It'll be a major culture change. We are not configured uh, to allow people to have near real time targeting at the forward edge across the maritime and land forces space. Now that makes sense for a lot of reasons. It means that the Pentagon doesn't have to build uh, organic programs of record internally they can use the latest and greatest technology that is funded by the private sector. It also means that export controllers can more easily uh, configure these systems in an interoperable way with allies. Some of them will be more advanced and, and classified, others less so, but it, it should it should actually make interoperability easier from an export control standpoint. And it will change the culture of the military. What this means is that soldiers will be individually trained to be much more data literate, to be able to, to deal with much more information at the forward edge, and so I think there are some important implications for our Arab allies as well. This will put a premium, and I'll start with my list is number one, two, and three is English language proficiency. Now I should be I should talk. I, I don't speak Arabic, and so. Some of our Arab friends could say, well, you haven't done much to try to reach out to us, and I'm guilty of that. Um, But the fact is, in order to be interoperable, English language proficiency is is really priority one, two, and three. Technological competence uh, at the basic soldier level is much more important in the future. And frankly, there should be technology, uh, if you will, experts embedded in military organizations. Um, This will also push decisions forward down through the lower echelon. So younger, you know, we need to breed leadership at younger levels, smaller unit, uh, autonomous, uh, delegated authority. That is a culture change for many of our friends in the Arab world. Uh, there will be operations that won't necessarily be in wide open uh, the, the desert spaces. They will be in urban environments or populated areas. There are a whole series of important tools which are backed by international law of civilians, avoidance of hitting the wrong target um, and and being able to essentially defuse munitions and landmines in order to protect civilians and soldiers in a complex environment. Uh, And finally, something that the United States can always do better, but we have always had an echelon of civilians who are expert in defense policy, not just military officers. And this is something that I commend to our Arab friends as well. Have somewhere in the policy area, more focus on defense policy expertise. Uh, Now, having said these things, these are sort of the the architectural changes. There is a political dimension to this, and I I won't talk about it now, except to point out that what has also changed since the time of the Gulf War is that we don't see quite the same unity among our our allies as we did before. We don't see, but we do see some individual agendas being pursued by certain states in other areas outside the Gulf, whether it's Libya or the Horn of Africa, Syria, etc., uh, Yemen. So this, this, this is complicated. It also uh, raises issues of support from Capitol Hill and in the administration of the future as well. Uh, there is real uncertainty, in other words, at the political level as to what the United States to stand for in the future and what our Arab allies plan to stand for in the future. Each side of this equation must embrace a vision of the future, hopefully a common vision, and that would help, I think, to navigate these technological and institutional changes that I see coming. So I'll be happy to hear questions and, and uh, looking forward to the other remarks. Thank you. Thank you, see a number of people with very busy schedules, and uh, I know you'll get a lot out of this two-day event. Um, I'd like to uh, sort of talk about, in general, the U.S.-Arab defense cooperation dynamic, which is a a mixed picture uh, with some challenges going forward. Uh, There is good news, and I'd like to start with that. The uh, U.S.-Arab defense cooperation also includes a diplomatic angle, which is rarely discussed. There are uh, deep strategic discussions between U.S. and leaders routinely as a result of that cooperation, and that diplomacy has uh, uh, helped transform the region in, in, in good ways and prevented bad things from happening. There's also counterterrorism element to this, which rarely receives much, much um, uh, focus uh, in places as uh, far field as uh, AFRICOM, as well as in the Middle East, and we have a routine engagement with that. But specifically when you think traditional military Cooperation. There's also some very good news stories there. The uh, cooperation between the United States and the Saudi government, for example, in their missile um, uh, defense program against Yemen, is uh, probably one of the greatest military successes of recent times. The Saudis have successfully, with the exception of Cape and Horace, um, uh, prevented hundreds of. Uh, missiles, land attack cruise missiles, and armed drones for striking their infrastructure and country, a country which, by the way, hosts 80,000 plus Americans. So there are uh, missiles that say do not turn left and right over the heads of Americans. Um, we have uh, Red Sea cooperation against piracy involving NAVSET, for example, which involves a number of states in the Middle East, and that is making international trade more secure. And uh, senior Arab actors are aware to bring other allies into the fold. It's routine for our military commanders, along with our senior-most diplomats, to discuss our efforts to engage Europe to work with the United Nations as part of their dynamic explaining the issue. But we do have some profound challenges. We have no national policy on this topic. And because we have no national policy, um, uh, we don't really have a path forward. And this is because we don't have a national policy on what is important
1: is a um, vocal and um, um, uh, authority
0: and routinely opposes military cooperation with uh, certain countries in the Middle East to punish them or to express displeasure for certain actions. Uh, But this has consequences. If you cut off intelligence sharing and military support, say to the Arab coalition in Yemen, we need to be very clear, this reduces their capacity to find missiles on the ground before they're launched that could threaten American men, women, and children in Saudi Arabia, as well as Saudis, as well as Europeans, as well as others. These, um, uh, we, have no, we often talk about no blank check. We should not give a blank check, and that's not true. We've never had a blank check with the region. The Obama administration denied certain uh, tools to the Arab coalition. The Trump administration has done the same thing. That's what the partners do in their engagement. Uh, the question therefore to have and what partnerships do we want to have? Can you give capacities to our partners in a changing Middle East where you do have actors in the Middle East who are now saying, if this is our neighborhood, if this is something we've got to take care of, we'll, we'll, we'll be in Libya. We'll be in Yemen. We'll be in these countries. And we need to do this because their definition of their strategic uh, security will be different from ours. And if we provide them with capabilities, those capabilities, into those conflicts. So I'll close with just a couple of comments. Um, the National Defense Strategy, as mentioned by Lincoln, is a hugely important document, and he's spot on, on all of that. But where, what's missing in the Middle East is the Middle East is engaged in a hybrid war. Uh, there are three great revisionist powers in the world, Russia, China, and Iran, but no country has so aggressively put forward gray-zone military tactics in, in, the, in the region. It's more broad than Iran is not always a good way of handling this. And uh, the problem is we don't actually have a deterrent against that activity. We provide the Gulf states with a vast amount of extraordinary ordinance, which has prevented and has shaped the prevented conventional conflicts and shaped the conventional environment. But we do not yet provide any of the Arab states with what actually might deter. Iran challenge that, you have to ask, what deterrence have we provided that has prevented hundreds of missiles from coming against Saudi Arabia? Likewise, what deterrence have we provided that has prevented, uh, the, uh, having prevented the Israelis and others from um, having two, uh, two attacks in Syria to prevent Iran from working there? This also makes coordination between our militaries uh, difficult um, and, our, and the bad actors in the region see this and they work in the gap. I'll close with one with one point. We often talk about how we should avoid a conventional war in the Middle East. We all agree that this is a good thing to do, right? Do we all agree that if a conventional war in the Middle East broke out tomorrow, we would have the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal covering on their front page? Okay? You're wrong. Okay? We've had hundreds of missile strikes from Yemen coming forward. That's a missile war. If air air defenses were superbly. We have Hundreds of Israeli airstrikes into Syria, and, Israel, and right, Israelis have lost the plane, and there's been air defense activity. That's an air war. We have cyber attacks against all members of the community. We have Iranian ground forces, not just goods force, test their regular forces in three countries. That is a ground war. The problem in the Middle East is a disaggregated conventional conflict, and hence we don't have a policy against this. So if we're going to move forward on Arab defense cooperation with the United States— you need to come up with a different approach to a very changed Middle East. Thank you. Well, that gauntlet's been thrown down, so I will uh, complete my remarks within five minutes and 30 seconds. Um, first off, I have to uh, echo Dr. Tarzan's remarks. I am uh, by the United States government in which to continue doing so. So I must point out that I do not speak for the United States government. And then secondly, it is customary for me to recognize the delegation from the United States Military Academy, West Point, and the Virginia Military Institute, South Point. Uh, in the past, we've had uh, midshipmen from the Naval Academy in Annapolis, but even though D.C. is not a state to cross from Maryland into D.C., you cross the state line, and that requires a of a parole officer. So, of course, uh, Annapolis is not represented today. Um, In the interest of brevity, I am going to uh, see if you can guess where I went to college. eh? Um, In the interest of brevity, I'm going to make five quick points. Uh, So far, we've heard some really great stuff that I can. And many of you have suffered through ramble on for 45 minutes about, um, uh, but I'm not. I'm going to have five points, and I'm going to basically discuss current trends. Gulf defense thinking. Uh, The first is in the reaction of the Apte Khurais attacks. The reaction we're seeing in the Gulf is not unlike the U.S. reaction to 9-11 and it's highlighted some of the things. The first is the vulnerabilities created by disjointed government. Um, Just as we uh, were spurred by 9-11 to consolidate our homeland defense responsibilities from 22 separate agencies in the Department of Homeland Security, we're starting to see uh, looks at this in areas where government was set up distinctly to be fragmented in order to prevent, uh, uh coups or in order to allow different family members to have different fiefdoms. Uh, so I should point out here, people said, well, you know, why was, uh, why were the refineries not protected? Air Defense and the Royal Saudi Air Defense Forces, which, as Dr. Willis pointed out, are an extremely competent force on a par with most NATO forces, um, They belong to the Ministry of Defense and the Responsibility for the Protection of Critical Infrastructure in Saudi Arabia belongs to the Ministry of the Interior. And uh, 10 years ago, I could have basically said the Ministry of Defense was the House of Sultan and the Ministry of the Interior is the House of Nayef. Now they are coming together. Uh, So there's a structural issue there. The second thing is, deterrence is a defense. Uh, Dr. Willis mentioned deterrence. as you can tell by my accent, I'm a graduate of the University of London, where I studied deterrence under Professor Lawrence Friedman. And um, uh, sometimes deterrence is a very uh, psychological construct. Uh, and honestly, the best quick reference on this is Dr. Strangelove, the movie, uh, where um, Dr. Strangelove at the end, who looks remarkably like uh, the uh, envoy to Afghanistan, Omey Khalilzad, um, says why did you create this doom device to prevent an American nuclear attack on the Soviet Union and not tell anybody about it? It doesn't work if they don't know about it. And that points out the psychological underpinning of deterrence. Uh, and this wasn't there. Um, look, the United States relies on deterrence to protect much of its critical infrastructure. There are no surface terror missiles around any nuclear reactor in the United States. There are no air defense systems around Hoover Dam. We rely on deterrence. The Saudis did that as well. And secondly, the third point, which is parallels. Again, 9-11 is just a failure of imagination. I don't think that anybody in the Kingdom thought that there would be a cruise missile and drone attack from the north vice the south. Uh, and, you know, radar is directional. The second point that I have here is that the Aptake uh, the, uh, attack pointed out that there is a lot of ignorance among people who should know better, who are paid to know about the capabilities and limitations of air defense systems, particularly the Patriot system. And uh, I appear frequently on the Arab media, and there are a lot of people who were billed as defense experts saying, well, you know, clearly this shows that everything that was sold to um, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and UAE is junk. The systems that were sold were um, sold to, to defend against ballistic missiles, which operate on a high trajectory. Uh, drones and cruise missiles operate at a low trajectory. And so, having cited Lawrence Friedman, I must now cite another great thinker of our time, Homer Simpson, who said... Oh, Marge, you're wasting money vaccinating kids for diseases they never catch. Um, Basically, this was a different threat, and a different threat requires different prevention. My third point, Russia is always eager to fish in troubled waters. Whenever it looks as though um, an American client is in some sort of trouble, or it looks like the United States has expressed that there are limits to the support for a client, we can count as inevitably as gravity, that there will be a Russian envoy and a Russian entreaty. This should not surprise us. Um, Last week I was in the Kingdom uh, at the same time as President Putin was there. He didn't even have the courtesy to send me a fruit basket. Um, I was amazed at noting that there were about eight miles of flags every 50 feet. And uh, I just don't know how they send these flags. You can still see the um, seams or the the folds from where they were there. uh, this is an element we got to get used to it, which is that our security partners, they're not allies, they're partners. They have options, and they will explore their options, uh, particularly if they're getting attacked. My fourth point is it is encouraging to see among our partners in the Gulf that there is a recognition now that equipment, and equipment alone, is not the be all end all. As Ambassador Blumflow has pointed out, um, equipment is good, but it, it is necessary but not sufficient. And education starting off with English language is actually the key to doing this. Look, if equipment could solve all of our problems, Wiley Coyote would have eaten that roadrunner a long, long time ago. I apologize for the um, academic tone of my remarks and the obscure references. And finally, my fifth point, which is indeed education is the most important aspect of this, I'm honored that my official duties involve me in education in the United Arab Emirates in Saudi Arabia, in Kuwait, in Iran. And, and, indeed, all throughout the region, there is a major focus on professional military education and inculcating a culture of critical thinking, which has been repressed both for bureaucratic, institutional, and, in some cases, like their state uh, cultural reasons. Um, and that is, in itself, encouraging. And so, as promised, five minutes and 37 seconds. I am delighted to take your questions. I have to count. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for that introduction. And Dr. Anthony, thanks for the opportunity. I know you mentioned hyphen point. I guess I'm going to bring the discussion from a hyphenated perspective, being an Arab-American hyphen in my title. And I served 33 in the U.S. military, so I give you a different perspective on exactly what, uh, uh, what you heard today. First, let me take you back to uh, President Carter's doctrine back in 1980 when he said, oh, any attempt by outside force to take control of the Persian Gulf <coughs> region will be regarded as an assault on the final interest of the United States, and such an assault will be repelled by any means necessary, including military force. So here we are, 19 years later, right? when it changes to this doctrine of U.S. policies from containment to containment, to uh, regime change, right, to uh, democratization, and also from uh, rebalancing of pecking forces to Asia, to burden sharing, security burden sharing, to simply uh, reimbursement of our security operations. Uh, and the reimbursement is not new. We just heard from President Trump, we've done this before without other all. Adel- So, um, but despite all that, we're still, we're still dedicating blood and treasure in the Middle East. And you heard General McKinsey yesterday when he said his troops are in contact every day and sent on area of operation. So war continues. So what is our national strategy priorities? Like I was asking that question in the Middle East, what is it? Uh, also, General McKinsey yesterday, he, had, he had the, uh, um, identified the national security strategy and the blood and national defense strategy that actually highlights our phones and what of the boss here on. So he talks about his priorities and talks about security cooperation. So what does security cooperation do for us? We you have a lot security cooperation, what does it do for us? It's officially security cooperation provides ways and means to help achieve national security, U.S. national securities, and foreign policy objectives. That's what the security cooperation does what are our security policy objectives in the Middle East? So this is for another panel to discuss. But let's ask this question. Who is the common enemy in the Middle East to shape and focus the security cooperation in the region? Who is the enemy? So if one of the major topics of, uh, of discussions in the last probably two years enemy for this alliance. Uh, outside terrorism, everybody agreed on counter terrorism, but didn't agree on the definition of terrorism. But again, you need to have a common enemy to, to, sh- to shape the force. We know, we have no doubt that Kingdoms already Arabia seized Iran as the principal regional threat. Kingdoms already Arabia sees that. We agree. General McKenzie yesterday agreed as enemy. And also the National Security strategy you know, the strategy talks about enemy, uh, Iran as an enemy. But does Iran, does Oman consider Iran as a principal threat? I mean, does Oman, does Qatar consider Iran as a principal threat? selling of defense articles and services. There's a lot of movement in this sector buying and buying and selling. But not much training. We buy and sell, not much training. I'm not talking about just individual training. I'm talking about collective training where units work together constantly, go and do things together. There are some good things the council do or bring some cadets they can to the back of the Middle East and bring Middle East here. That's, that's good. But we're talking about collective. you also need an enemy to train against. You can't just go out and train and operate a vehicle. you a going to train collectively to from a common doctrine to do so. So we have not identified that threat out there to train collectively against it. So is it Iran? Is Iran is a threat for the enemy. So looking back, let's go back to the Carter Doctrine up to now, and let's see who did we fight. We, we have bombed Iraq. We bombed Syria. Sudan, we bombed Yemen, and we also ousted two of Iranian's well, uh, uh, arch enemies, Saddam Hussein to the west, and they have the Taliban to its, to its east. But we haven't touched Iran, the principal uh, Iran. So we have a, I see a confused, a blobsided security cooperation uh, uh, in the Middle East. I, again, I'm seeing that at first hand as an observer, as a consumer, security cooperation as a implementer of US security cooperation, also policy formulator to this security cooperation in the Middle East. So let me provide a few productive comments. I learned that from Dr. Henry He said productive comments. Productive comments on the security operation in the region. One thing we pride ourselves in the defence arena that we work by see this approach, the buy-with-and-through approach, as superficial, transactional, and temporary. So why is it superficial? Because the majority of the population don't consider those defense articles and services we pro- provide their militaries as an enabler for their security, stability, and for the defense of their territorial integrity. They don't see that. They consider that as a burden on their economy, burden on the economy, also as they perhaps solely provided for regime protection. That's, I That's why it's superficial. So and why is it transactional? Because we're we'll making it clear we're in there. We're seeking three things. We're seeking access to the region, access to ports, airports, light communication. We're seeing we're seeking, seeking basing. We'd like to have some boats on the ground or ships docked. And we see overflights with the race as Why is it temporary? We heard yesterday that uh, we have uh, a section from Dr. Abdulaziz Al-Aweshi from the TCC. He, he said that the TCC since 2004, in 2001, uh, 2000, year 2000, they signed a mutual defense treaty between the TCC countries. The sign is there, perhaps on paper, but they have a mutual defense treaty. There is no such defense treaty agreement between the United States. And there are countries. None. So and so if in times of war, so we may commit forces, if there's a war right now in the Middle East, we'll talk about Iran or whatever, do we commit forces to defend the region? So we may do that. We may not. It depends on the politics today. An example of that we have the Syrian defence forces. Uh, we decided not to commit to, to do what we did. So where is the strategic, uh, 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 while, while there is a strategic utility for arms sales, it's not enough to call it security cooperation, simply arms sales. Shy of defense, serious serious defense agreement with partner nation in the Middle East, uh, security cooperation will, will not be sufficient for building necessary and, uh, necessary and sufficient trust for mutual defense. defense has to have the trust factor. I I, I close with this. Security cooperation is based on trust and people, and not on particles and services. Trust and intelligence sharing, and I know Dr. Tom talked about that. That's very critical. You've got to have intelligence sharing. And also on people, people in training, exchange ideas in classrooms, training grounds, and if necessary, blood on the battlefield.
1: Uh, in this region and building opportunities for future growth with those local industry. Uh, Dr. Tarzan mentioned that I lead Global Strategic Partnerships for Northrop Mission Systems. And that means that every day I get to wake up and think about what uh, partnerships we can build with local industry that will be mutually beneficial and help both companies to target markets, we believe there's a lot of growth potential there, and that's why we as a company are investing so much in the region. About six years ago, we opened two corporate offices, uh, one in Saudi Arabia and one in the UAE. But we've been in the region much longer. We have a joint venture in Saudi Arabia called Vanilla Arabia, which has been there for over 30 years, and we're happy to have worked with the Saudi Arabian National Guard in training and venture called Allied Tech Systems, uh, which builds both space and defense-related equipment in the region. And I'm happy to say that we're close to establishing another partnership with SAMI, which is the Saudi Arabian Military Industries, um, which will be a company-wide partnership that will work on everything from munitions to defense electronics to training capabilities and technologies to local industry in the region. I constantly am reminding my teams that uh, it's really our best interest to be working with local industry industry and be developing a local supply chain because it's really the local industry that has the customer intimacy and the awareness of uh, the customer's requirements much more so than an outside company does trying to come into the region. We're also very focused on building university partnerships that we're uh, building up the next generation of technology leaders in the region. We are adding daily new companies to our supply chain in the region. And uh, we're adding lots of names to that approved supplier list. So if there's industry here in the audience today, I would love to chat with you if you can catch me on one of our networks. panel was the most succinct and on-point capture I've ever heard of the components that should be the focus of U.S. air defense cooperation, cooperation over the next year and perhaps the next 20 years. So I think it's worth all of us taking notes, anyone from DSCA, anyone in policy, anyone at the commands, any J3 chefs, any J5s, write all of this down, what you've heard from these folks. Because if we seek increased interoperability between the U.S. and the region, I think what we should pay attention to is the tasks the panel outlined for both U.S. and regional partners and industry. On the U.S., the way, what I, my takeaway is that the task is to address and advance the export control regulations on new technologies that will otherwise slow our ability to be interoperable. On industry, the task would be to continue the job creation and training that currently do so well and to try to speed up delivery timelines that make the competition from our adversaries less attractive to our regional partners while also using, continuing to try to use local supply chains. And on the region, several tasks that we would love to help with as the U.S. The first is because of the increasing technology advancements and the the need for increased data and um, data technology on the battlefield, the U.S. is going to be moving our troops in that direction. Will the regions be able to come with us? So the focus should be on education, both in English literacy and in technological literacy. And rely on U.S. partners to help you with that call where you need that assistance. But the takeaway is make sure your folks are up to speed so that they can truly be capable partners out there and not just sitting behind the U.S. folks. We need the buy with them through to truly be through. Uh, We also need to address the lack of unity among Arab allies that was touched on by several partners. The expeditionary activity that's occurring outside of the region, while admirable from the the perspective of looking at their own defense and strategic needs, is causing problems for the U.S. in terms of congressional disagreements with that activity that then hamper our ability to transfer technologies and provide training. So perhaps greater transparency on that activity would be useful. And that's kind of an easy one to fix, folks. Uh, The second would be the second big Challenge for all of us, the task I took away from the panel is the need to focus on deterrence as much as we are on these future technologies. So we've kind of gotten away from that. It's time to get back to that. And the third would be the need for a coordinated strategy to address gray zone and asymmetric threats um, that are currently shaping what we're seeing. So what we're planning for future battle with technologies, what are we doing to address what we're currently seeing? And this means more red teaming, more war gaming, more planning, more professional military education and more co-strategizing. So I'd like to thank the panel for all of their insights um, and encourage the folks in the room to take advantage of this wisdom uh, when looking into what the future of defense cooperation should be in the next years or so, really with concrete plans.
0: Assess the tactical and strategic capabilities of American and Arab militaries as they pertain to asymmetric warfare. Iran's capabilities in those regards versus ours and our friends. I would want to assess the capability of Arab states to conduct regional defense. And Partners, I think this was addressed. But if you wanted to add something more to that, please feel free to do so. How can the United States assist the Arab and our partners in, in improving cyber security capabilities? We know about uh, the Stuxnet and other aspects played a role, to Iran and also Sony those facilities. How can the United States and Arab trafficking of small arms by extremists and insurgent groups in the region. Where are they getting the weapons from? And how are they getting them? And uh, what have we been doing if anything, or what was doing if anything, to stop that, to curb that? I think Mr. Rule mentioned the defense aspects of that, but we're talking about small arms here. How can the United States enhance ca cajole Arab states to be more transparent to their own respective counter terrorism programs I'm not sure what is not, not that uh, how no. might one evaluate the effectiveness of the u.s in its counter terrorism efforts in the region of course the president would say well we've defeated thedel and uh, what else do you want to know States partner with Arab countries to analyze uh, the successes and the limitations of de-radicalization programs throughout the region and apply those lessons in the future. We know that GCC Secretary General is keen on that. It's one thing to defeat the insurgent. from the business um, and recessed. See, there's no deterrence against Iran's on activities, but question to you and any others Then what all that deterrence. Well, as the work can be done to build up the next generation of technical leaders in the area. And Dr. Cosy and some others have touched a little on that. Sure. I guess this sort of <laughs> uh, maybe I'll start this off and military and industrial expertise to follow. So I'm going to say something a little bit unusual, which is that I want to go back to Colonel DeHook's excellent point about trust and people-to-people connection. That really is uh, the foundation of effective cooperation. Without trust, without people-to-people familiarity and cooperation, equipment and all the rest of it, structures, political have no effectiveness. What I'm going to say is that before we start talking about our friends in the Arab world, we need to look in the mirror and recognize that here in Washington, not only are we in a dynamic period where we don't quite know what it is that we're trying to get done from a strategic standpoint, nor do we really have uh, fundamental points of what we stand for and why it's important for us to risk the defense of American lives and property allied. No, it's not. It actually is about principle and about justice and about very much deeper values, which are at risk on a major scale uh, from autocratic regimes uh, further away. Uh, How is the world going to evolve? In which direction is it going to evolve? In a free direction or an unfree direction? So I think there's a great deal at stake. And what I wanted to suggest is that the beginning of wisdom here starts with how Washington does business. We've talked about whole of government for years. If you listen to our four stars, they can't stop saying that we need to integrate all the tools of national power. Why do they keep saying that? Because we don't do it. And so I'm going to say something unusual, which is you've heard uh, our, our senior military leaders talk about by, with, and through very sensible, very logical. Yes, there are some limitations. It doesn't show the population the same thing as 500,000 troops in the desert. But we don't do by, with, and through at the political level, do we? We come in and say, this is what we're going to do, this is what we're not going to do. Thank you very much. Let's have a meeting. Goodbye. We don't have a hold of government structure. We don't do military for a political purpose. It's measured by political. It's a a bigger subject than this. But all of these uh, questions that Dr. Anthony has repeated uh, come back to uh, the United States can begin to fuse defense and foreign policy around principles. And when we do that, we can begin to connect people to people with both foreign military and Arab military and Arab political and Arab cultural and Arab civil society. We can connect around what we stand for. Future that we're leading towards. So I am an optimist. Um, my optimism comes from the wrong place, which is that we haven't done anything right yet. But once we do, a lot is possible. So I'm an eternal optimist. There's a lot that can be done here. I, I do want to say specifically on small arms light weapons. Um, the late uh, President. Donald say, start with the maritime force that's been in the Gulf for 72 years, beef it up, focus on it, because that's how the guns get transferred, that's where the trouble's coming from, that's how you deter Iran, that's how you get at the proxy, deniability uh, of Iran uh, flowing arms to its proxies, at least uh, in Yemen and, and the Red Sea, and I think you'll find a lot more than that in drug money missions that the maritime force is undertaking, and it, that needs to be focused on even more. Um, and so, as for Iran, um, I don't think the military is the answer. I think we need to keep saying, you don't address Iran militarily. They have problems internally. Norman Rule is a national expert on the subject. But frankly, there are ways uh, to make them less comfortable uh, in their own midst with 80 million unhappy Iranians, and I think that's really uh, where, where my answer comes from. Thank you. Thank you, sir. One thing I think has been mentioned yesterday, based on what you said, Ambassador, there are task forces, the combined task forces, Uh, the three of them, counter-piracy, small arms, and uh, they have been working in human trafficking. Uh, We can learn from that. I know they're they're very, very active on piracy. I mean, we don't have almost piracy down to zero in the whole of Africa. These are good stories. Even China, as was mentioned yesterday, was involved in good stories go away because we look at, at the failures but they actually have been very successful and, and one of them was 21 countries if I'm not wrong I've didn't, I didn't tried to find out all of them I couldn't uh, and, and I have those exercises and this is fantastic we can use those but use it so it needs more uh, and I don't want to say it. I, I come from the government and some of them we don't show up the, the meetings uh, Every country is involved except us we even are part of it for various reasons and, and that will I've been referred to as doctor several times, and although many people suggested I should see a doctor, uh, I am not a doctor. success. Uh, the Saudi Arabia uh, and the Gulf have undertaken significant changes to turn off funding to CT extremists. This has been underway for more than 10 years. It's often the opposite is said in public. It's not true uh, by so-called experts. Uh, uh, that transformation took place in part because of the pain they themselves were feeling from extremism uh, after 2000, 2001. But there's a success story there. Deradicalization is a long-term issue. And again, the international community needs to pull together, drawing upon the cultural and, and, and linguistic capabilities of our Arab partners to work with um, in such places as uh, uh, Syria Which work, and I, I, know, I know the regional players involved welcome more assistance, but I think it's less that there are of, of we need to be part of this, and more that they're recognizing there are no silver bullets, and this is a long-term fight. Uh, that's the specific things we should be doing with the GCC. Uh, I think we do a superb job on conventional defense; we really do a great job. But there is a region, there is an absence, and this isn't entirely because of the fracture uh, in the GCC. Of a counter cyber, a counter ballistic missile, and of course a counter drone common uh, policy. Uh, the uh, hunt for a uh, MISA and Arab NATO has been ongoing since 1980, but indeed the GCC was formed. That was the purpose of the GCC. But as been stated by other speakers, you have um, different perspectives of is Iran the enemy from Oman or, or Qatar, for example. That isn't something that we. certainly better than, than anything else. As to the, the fracture itself in the GCC, uh, I've been watching this region up close for uh, 35 years. Uh, this uh, fracture did not begin in 2014 or 15. Uh, it did not begin with Donald Trump nor Mohammed bin Salman. It could have happened, uh, trust me, on this pretty much every year since 1995. Uh, I will assign blame as to why. another current ruler don't get along with specific policies or a problem. This will require a lot of trust and investment and diplomacy by um, the United States and our military commanders in the region. But again, that won't happen unless we have a have a, of a common policy uh, involving Congress as to what success in the region is and a commitment to, to work these hard issues over time. Thank you. Thank you very um, much. So there are 13 questions, and I have. 20. Uh, four general officers, just three positive, one negative, and then I'll take a whack at answering two or three of the specific questions. So the first thing is, um, one of the um, innovations the United States government has done that's been unnoticed is in the last National Defense Authorization Act. There was a Section 333 passed, which required the United States, when we sell weapons, to actually ensure that we build the institutional capacity to employ these weapons effectively, so that encompasses everything from Ministry of Defense reform. It's basically calling out the bluff that, uh, or the, or the, uh, maybe the false pretenses that we've kind of been engaged in for the last 40 years since the uh, Arms, 50, 60 years since the Arms Export and and Control Act passed uh, 1962, I guess. Um, uh, that this will help them modernize, and it, it says okay, there has to be an educational component. There has to be a critical theory. There has to be a doctrinal component. So it requires uh, the U.S. government to engage with our partners in a way to actually ensure that there is capacity. So that's a positive thing, and I spent a lot of time working on that. The second thing in terms of the United States government getting it right is I want to point to a little-known organization, the um, uh, Office of the the, the Mission to the Saudi Ministry of the Interior. This was uh, initially established in response to the – uh, Al-Qaeda uptake attacks in 2006. Um, it is under the lead of the State Department's Colonel, headed up by Master Joseph Saloon, who's one of the more
1: dedicated dudes I've met in my life. Um, and it is multi-agency, so it's
0: got U.S. Army, FBI, DEA, Coast Guard, uh, State Diplomatic Service, the Federal Law Enforcement Academy at Glencoe, Georgia, involved in enhancing aspects of the Saudi Ministry of the, of the Interior Association us government engagement led by the State Department, as it should be, that uh, deals with the actual ongoing issues of internal security. And, of course, it requires close management because internal security is something uh, particularly dealing with countries that aren't democracies, and we have to recognize that none of our partners in the region are democracies. Um, so, um, but it, it is encouraging. We're getting at the third uh, positive overview I want to point out is that our partners do realize the need for English, indeed most requested Saudi military training course is actually English language instruction, which, if you think about it, and I've served in the military for a while, we don't speak English very well in the military, so the fact that they're going to the military for English language shows that they recognize the importance of it, and uh, it is possible. Now, let me give you a negative test, a negative trend, which is, I think, because of the rise of global information, 24-hour news channels, social media, Internet. You can spend all your waking hours reading news from Yemen, and you can get it instantaneously. Whereas in the past, there might be an article from the Economist every three months or so. And what that means is that our democracy is is expecting more of our partners. You know, I, I was a, a child when we abandoned abandoned the Republic of Vietnam to the Communists, to what was a conventional invasion by a, by a conventionally trained armed force from the north. In violation of and we renounced our commitments that we made to the Vietnamese to replace their equipment, you know, And um, we kind of lived through that. And part of the reason why we did that was there was a constant narrative. If you go back through the archives, look at TV reports about the corruption and the undemocratic nature of the human rights violation of the South Vietnamese government and the American people were happy with leaving the South Vietnamese to the killing fields in large part because of the narrative of persistent corruption and anti-democratic practices among our South Vietnamese partners. Well, now everybody knows that Jamal Khashoggi was murdered, and that calls our presence into account. And whenever a human rights activist is arrested in Saudi Arabia or Qatar or the UAE or in any of the other countries, and I think they all have problems, um, that calls our very basic presence there into question in ways that did not reach the average American citizen And so, the corollary to this is the ongoing GCC, um, blockade, crisis, isolation of counter, call it what you will, that calls, again, our presence in the region into question. Why should we have our own citizens there if they can't agree amongst themselves? And unfortunately, I fear that while there is bad blood, as as not Dr. Rule has pointed out, um, while there is bad blood, then there are internal things there. I think that The um, lobbyist community here in Washington is getting very rich off of this. This has become like lobbyist potlatch. And uh, there are people now who are vested uh, in various places around the world to keep this alive. And and then we have to realize, if you take a step back, that it calls, it it weakens the American commitment, not just to the country's involvement, to the entire region. quickly, specifically, uh, on counterinsurgency and asymmetrical warfare, they're more or less the same thing insurgency special warfare at the heart of it is warfare that capitalizes on grievances in the civilian population that migrates some of the tools or aspects of conventional warfare into other realms like civil government like civil populations and so the only way to really counter it in any lack associated in the region. We see the the riots in Lebanon or the protests in Lebanon and the restrictions that Um, Vision 2030 on the face of it and all the various reform measures in the Gulf they are formulated in parts to undercut uh, the vulnerabilities the the democratic deficit uh, the the lack of responsiveness of government to individual citizens that provides the fertile ground for asymmetric warfare and insurgency and so if those measures are successful Governance, rather than any military or security step, is the most effective counter to asymmetric warfare and counterinsurgency. Thank you Thank you very much. Uh, I just want to say that we have a little more minutes beyond the time of statement there because we started late. So I'm going to interrupt. more okay. the ambassador mentioned the element. So the topic today is security cooperation. Security cooperation is part of the military element of power, but also security cooperation is a tool, is a diplomatic tool, that actually, see, uh, from the states, other edges, use that for, for towards that uh, and an end. So, if you have a strong military element of power, you have strong, robust security cooperation. Does not, and you don't have any complementary diplomatic, economic uh, uh, strategies. We have a very good, robust counter-ISIS operations that presents very competent uh, enough, uh, 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 the foreign internal defense operations going there, but did not have the uh, diplomatic clout to basically support that, that uh, element of power. That's why I'm trying to the second one on the counter-ideology, I think there is a good case study at that time as well. But uh, this is a star idea when they started doing their own they have their own terrorism that happened to be by uh, the Saudi terrorists. For example, when we President Bush declared his war on terrorism, they said, You yeah, are well, that's what the terrorists. So we had the, the luxury to just divide that us versus them the terrorists. Saudis did not have the that, that um, the luxury to do that because the, the people are doing bad things, doing that doing them harm. They're actually from what somebody's mother or somebody's dad. So how did they how do you tackle something like this? Well so what they did, they did not call him terrorist. They called him a bubble, means that deviant youth. So they brought some kind of, you know, a dignity to not necessarily to the person that doing that, to so the family around this person. So instead of, you know, isolating that, that guy and everybody with them, they isolate that guy as a, as a, as a good person with one display from the right And I think that was a control, police themselves on the inside, and, and they did a good job of it. And then, again, we, we heard that also Sardar did great work with counterterrorism, writ large, outside uh, Sardar in the region, and so on. Just one man comment I on the Islamic Military uh, Alliance. terrorists within Muslim countries who only can also put blood and treasure uh, against it. Um, just back to the first the comment is what I talked about. Uh, uh, we talked about increasing the military and uh, maritime security, increasing the counterinsurgency. And my point here too, to if you increase all this military capability, you don't have to complement uh, economic and diplomacy. With it, that, all that increase in the region is not going to get you anywhere. There's multiple examples where our maritime not doing something, but smuggling weapons throughout the helix. And you stayed within the military, or stayed within any within the small circles, did not go out there because it was countering the diplomatic efforts we're doing. So even though you might have a very robust military, but if you have that diplomatic cloud, and diplomatic will to, to, to uh, uh, accomplish a common objective, that, that diplomatic, that military service is not going to assist you much. Know,
1: more partners with several universities um, so that we can start targeting students at a very young age who have an interest in engineering and the sciences so that we can build that pipeline of workforce and next generation technical leaders um, who can work in the defense industry. Uh, as an example, we worked with King Saad University in Saudi Arabia to build a C4 Center of Excellence. We've run several Cybersecurity and robotics and UAVs uh, to build interest in those types of, of technologies, um, and we a company are committed to, to continuing to invest in universities going.
0: He has taken responsibility for killing more Koreans than you did. So fast forward to what Dr. Tarsi just said, and the Piracy in the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean. Uh, A friend of mine who's a friend of the um, diplomat that we're going to hear from uh, shortly from Oman, said that uh, His Majesty Sultan Pankabusa was concerned about this because Oman, of all the GCC countries, has the largest border on the Indian Ocean. And he said, you go to Somalia and you find out why these youths are engaging in this piracy." He said, I went 18 times in one year. And I started going out to the pirates themselves and said, why the hell are you doing? Going to allow that daughter to be married to me. Five, no bank will provide me a loan because I don't have a job and a means to pay it back. This is why I do it. So then he said, I started going through the parents in an effort to kind of shame the youths into stopping this. But with the parents and the youth, he said, What are we talking about in terms of money? And the average figure was $900 a month. Caboose said. Stopped in cooperation with the British and the French. So this sort of novel thing, as Somalia imploded, people thought half can the country continued to exist, but it has no government. Well, it has, for the kinds of reasons that he put his fingers on it. So did nearly all the others in a different way. This was 1979, the first one. Here we are, 2019. Forty years later, still grappling with these things, but unable to come up with an effective response, let alone a solution. Thank all of our panelists for being Uh, here. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you.